All right. We are in the book of Numbers, and um, we're going to finish up chapter 13, and uh, and then and then uh, Lord willing, start chapter 14. But uh, we we kind of passed over a portion in in Numbers chapter 13 that I wanted to go back to and talk about a little bit. And um, there's a very strange. Uh, piece of scripture in here that goes back to another strange piece of scripture in Genesis, and I just wanted to talk about it and go over it. Um, if if anybody's interested in, in in my notes, I have all my notes here. I can airdrop it to you, or or text it to you, or email it to you if you're so if you're so uh, inclined to to take them. But um, if you turn with me in Numbers chapter 13, um, <clears throat> verse 33. Um, and remember, the 12 spies were sent out to spy out the land, and one of the things that we talked about was that wasn't God's plan. That was the people's plan. God said, go in and inhabit the land, right? Go take the land. It was the people that said, well, we should probably send some spies in there first to see what we're dealing with. Uh, and that's a bad idea, because it's like Peter when he said to Jesus when Jesus came walking out to the disciples on the water and they're in the boat and Peter said, Lord, if it's really you, then call me to come to you and to walk on the water. And Jesus said, come on out. And Peter caught out and started walking on the water to Jesus. But then he stopped to think about the fact that he was walking on water and it's impossible. And it says that he looked around and he saw the waves and the storm and the sea. And he started to see the circumstances and he started to realize to himself, this is impossible. This is an impossible, ridiculous situation. I can't be doing that. It's like, well, dummy, you are doing that. Because why? Because Jesus said, whatever Jesus says, I want you to do this. He then gives you the ability to do these things, right? That's the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit. When Jesus said, you'll be endued with power from on high, the Greek word there is dudamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from, but the word literally means the ability to do. The ability to do. The ability to do what? Live this Christian life. That's just as well beyond you as walking on water, right? To walk in his steps, to be like Jesus. And yet when God calls us to do something, we have but to will to obey, uh, Pastor Chuck Smith preached an awesome message, one of my all-time favorites from Pastor Chuck, about when Jesus healed the man with the withered hand. And when Jesus spoke to the man and he said, I want you to stretch out your hand, all of the power and all of the ability that was necessary for that man to reach out his hand was there. To stretch out his hand was there. The man simply had to will to obey. He had to will to obey the commandment of God. If God commands you, then he's going to give the ability to you to do the thing that he's commanded you to do. And so when God said, I want you to go in and inhabit the land, there wasn't supposed to be any spies. Well, let's go, let's see what we're dealing with. So, of course, they send in the 12 spies, and as you guys know, they come back, and 10 of the spies bring a bad report. Only Joshua and Caleb bring a good report. And their entire good report, they don't question, and they don't deny, and they don't say uh, that any of the parts of the bad report are wrong or false or a lie. They don't deny any of the difficulty. They don't deny any of the seemingly impossible tasks that lay before the children of Israel to inhabit the land. They simply say, God has told us to go take it. It's a good land. 
And as we're going to get into in chapter 14, I love it. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I got a lot of them, right? They are bread for us. They're bread. Giants, bread for us. You know, you got to love that kind of heart, that kind of grit. But it was based on faith. It wasn't based on their own ability. It wasn't based on what great warriors they were. It was based on their own ability. But in verse 33 of Numbers 13, we have this strange verse where uh, the, the, the ten spies bringing the bad report says, there we saw the giants, <clears throat> the descendants of Anak uh, came, and it says in parentheses, the descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. Now, you guys have, we, we read and preach out of the New King James Version. If you have an NIV version, the newly inspired version, right? That was a dig on NIV people. We're not King James people here. And one of the things I love is when Bible scholars get, uh, in, get kind of stuff shoved in their face, you know. Um, and people will say, well, it has to be this way or it has to be that way. Uh, the NIV version has the correct translation. And it doesn't say giants. It says Nephilim. It doesn't say giants. It says Nephilim. Now, turn with me, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 6, <clears throat> Genesis chapter 6, and verse 4. Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4. Now this is preceding the, pl- uh, uh, the flood, okay, where Noah has, has, is telling, God is telling Noah to build this ark uh, because he's going to send a flood upon the earth to destroy mankind because the Bible specifically says that every intention of their heart was only evil all the time. Wow. I mean, I felt like that sometimes about myself, right? I feel like almost every intention of my heart today has only been evil all the time. But God actually says that every intention of their, uh, of their heart was only evil all the time. It had grown so wicked and so perverse that God sent judgment upon the planet. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, we have this strange verse that says, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them, and they were, hero, they were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, do you know who wrote the book of Genesis? Anybody? Moses. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. So Moses was the one that writes these words. The correct translation of Numbers chapter 13, verse 33 is this. There we saw the Nephilim. Uh, The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. And now Joshua and Caleb, no one else disputes that when they bring this report. Now, they're bringing this report to put fear into the heart of the people, and I want you to remember, uh, well, look at Numbers chapter 14 and verse 1. Okay, the last verse we read is, hey, guys, guess what? The descendants of the Nephilim are there. 14.1, so all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And as you know, we're going to get into it. They were afraid, and they said, we can't take this land. We're going to be destroyed. We're going to be killed. <clears throat> well, my opinion is, is that one of the main things that they were so afraid of was the existence in the land of these things, of these creatures, of these people, whatever you want to call them, these descendants of the Nephilim. 
We're going to get into Og, the king of Bashan, as we go on in the scriptures. Talks about him having uh, 13 fingers and toes, and his bed was 10 feet long, and all. he was a giant. Uh, when we get to uh, the exploits of David, he fights Goliath. Uh, Goliath was a giant. And it, Goliath wasn't like a, an eight-foot-tall minute bowl, you know what I'm saying, where you could knock him over. He was like an eight-foot-tall Mike Tyson, okay? A, a beast of a man. The entire army of Israel was shaking and quaking. Goliath would come out, you guys all know the story, and he would come down into the valley and he would try defy you. I defy you. And they'd be like, oh, we can't do anything with this guy. David, and this is the, one of the reasons that God says, this is a man of my own heart, a man after my own heart, is David doesn't give a rip how big Goliath is. He doesn't care how impossible the task is of fighting this man is. He simply says, who is this uncircumcised fellow who defies our God? I'll fight him. I'll fight him because God is with us, right? It was about faith. So, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 4, we have this strange verse about the Nephilim. So the question is, who the heck are the Nephilim? <laughs> what is this portion talking about? Now, there's, there's and we're not going to get all, we're going to get to the fact that we're not going to get all crazy about this stuff, okay? But it's here, and it's very fascinating, and I, so I thought it would be very interesting for us to kind of go over it this morning. There are three basic theories to the idea of who the sons of God were. Genesis 6, 4. Uh, there were Nephilim on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. Okay? So who were the sons of God? The three basic theories are this. that they were The first theory is that they were of the godly line of Seth. Okay? Now remember, Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel. And of course, remember, Abel was bringing forth a sacrifice to God that God accepted, and Cain was bringing forth a sacrifice to God that God did not accept. And God told Cain, don't be upset, don't be angry, Cain. If you do the right things, you'll be accepted. But if you don't do the right things, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have mastery over you, but you need to have mastery over it. Well, Cain doesn't want anything to do with any of that kind of stuff. He wants to do it his way. He wants God to accept him as he is. And so instead of obeying God's word, he turns and he kills his brother Abel. And we know God calls him out on it. He's, put, he's, he's sent from the garden. He's sent from that area to roam throughout the earth. And a mark is put on his body to show who he is. So the one theory is that now, because remember, after Abel is killed and Cain leaves, Adam and Eve have another son, and his name is Seth which means God is appointed. And he becomes the father of the nations that lead all the way down to Noah and from Noah's generations to Abraham and from Abraham's generations, of course, to Jesus Christ. So that's the godly line. And so uh, some scholars say that when it says the sons of God, it means the sons of Seth. That's one theory. The other theory is that it simply is a reference to heroes from the mythical past. Uh, tyrant kings like Gilgamesh, which we're going to get into a little bit. And the third theory is that they are angels who took physical form and married and had children with mortal women. Now, which one of those theories do you suppose I believe? <laughs> I believe that when you read the Bible, it means what it says. I believe that when you read the Bible, you don't have to start doing all sorts of mental gymnastics 
to try to make it say something that makes sense. There's a whole bunch of things in the Bible that don't make sense to the human mind, right? What does Paul say about the gospel and the truth of God's word? It is foolishness to the Greek. It's a stumbling block to the Jew because your works aren't involved with your salvation, right? It's totally a gift of God by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus. It's a stumbling block to the Jew. But to the Greek, it's simply foolishness. All that stuff is just a bunch of poppycock. Any of you who've been to any secular school at all and have had professors, they'll be happy to tell you that, right? It's a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of fairy tales. But it's either God's word or it's not. I think it's, uh, and I personally suspect that it's a combination of the second and third, uh, that what God says in his word happened actually happened, and that a lot of the stories, a lot of the histories, a lot of the legends of old are loosely based on the fact that these things existed, that these things were there. Now, the Bible says that Noah was perfect in his generations. And one of, the, one of the theories about that and God saying that is that God was specifically talking about, and we'll, we'll mention the book of Enoch quickly, okay? But one of the things that it says in there is that when it says Noah was perfect in his generations, what it means is that his family line was not polluted by these things, by these whatever these sons of God were. Now, I want to read some verses concerning the sons of God because I think first we have to establish who are the sons of God, okay? And the only way to do that, in my opinion, is through God's Word. So turn with me to the book of Job, chapter 1, if you will. Job, chapter 1. You know which the oldest book in the Bible is? Job. Job is an ancient book. Uh, you, read, you read the book of Job, it's very, very fascinating, a lot of the things. The, Job talks about dinosaurs, okay? The Bible's pretty clear about the fact that dinosaurs and men cohabitated the earth, okay? No, 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 you, you, you simpleton, you moron. What are you, some sort of a pipe fitter? You don't know anything about Greek and Hebrews, literature. Behemoth was a hippopotamus. Oh, really? Brains? The Bible says that the behemoth's tail swayed back and forth like a cedar tree. Have you seen a hippopotamus's tail? A hippopotamus's tail is not, it's a shoestring. It, it's not a cedar. Okay? It talks about uh, these, some of these creatures, Leviathan in, in the book of Job. These are like dinosaur creatures. Okay? It's an ancient book. Now, Job chapter uh, 1, verse 6, and you guys know how the story goes. Job chapter 1, verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. Again, in Job chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Remember, God asked Satan this question, where have you been roaming to and fro across the earth? Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one righteous like him in all the earth. And of course, Satan says, ah, oh, because you've done all these things for him, let me afflict him and he'll turn from you, he'll curse your name. And so we have the story of Job, right? But we have this interest, these interesting verses, and what do we see here? What we see is God sitting in his glory, God sitting in the heavens, 
And the sons of God are presenting themselves before his throne. And Satan comes with them. This ain't happening on planet Earth. Or at least, it's not happening, happening in our dimension. Now that's a whole other thing that we could get into, but I really don't have the brains for that. Because when you're talking about multiple dimensions, it's the idea that because we're three-dimensional beings, we can't see a four-dimensional being. An angel could be standing right here, but because he occupies four dimensions, I can't see him. It's as simple as that. When we're glorified and we're made like, God, like, made like Jesus Christ, when we see him, we will be, be made into interdimensional beings because we'll be of spirit, we'll be a spirit drive. Remember, Jesus said, touch my hands, touch my wounds. Can't you see I'm flesh and bone? He didn't say flesh and blood. Jesus Christ, when he rose from the grave, he did not have blood. All of his blood was gone from his body. He was spirit-driven. He is spirit-driven. God is a spirit. He's flesh and bone, though. He did have a body, but he was able to pass through walls. He was able to appear in their presence and disappear from their presence. The Bible says we're going to be like him when we see him. Interesting. So, this is happening in the heavenlies. This is happening in whatever dimension or whatever place uh, that we call heaven where God dwells. In his throne room and the sons of God are presenting themselves before God. And Satan comes with them. Now, uh, move forward to Job chapter um, <clears throat> 38. Job chapter 38, uh, verses 4 to 7. And this, of course, is towards the end of Job when all of Job's buddies have been accusing him. God's, God's cursing you and all these bad things are happening to you because of, you've sinned somewhere in your life. Some, somewhere, someplace you've done something bad and now you're paying the price for it. <clears throat> and Job is justifying himself before God and he begins to almost accuse God because bad things are happening to him and he knows he hasn't done anything wrong. He knows he's a righteous man. And so he almost begins to accuse God and that's when God shows up. And God begins to question them. You know, it's an awesome part in the scriptures. But here's one of the questions that God asked Job. Job 38, 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. I wish God would show up at a university, to a science class, to a biology class, and, and, and say, hello, professor. Answer me this. Where were you? You know what I mean? I want... Oh, man. You know what I'm saying? I get all fired up about imaginary things that are never going to happen. But it, well, can you imagine if it did happen? How awesome that would be. And so you see God questioning Job. Where were you uh, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know you're so smart. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? God's talking about creating the earth. God is talking about creating Job's reality and the sons of God were there shouting for joy. Now, in the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 3, one of our most favorite and famous stories in the Bible would be the fiery furnace. Remember? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who can tell me their Hebrew names? Because I can't. Every time I read it, I've got to remember what their Mishael and, as, and some, right, see? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's, that's hard enough for me, okay? You all know the story. 
They refuse to worship the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar builds. At the sound of all the music, everyone in the land needs to face the statue, and they need to bow down, and they need to worship it. Well, of course, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to do that. They refuse to bow down, and they refuse to worship it, and they say no matter what the consequences, and they tell the king, we believe that our God is able to save us from your hands, O king, but even if he doesn't, we will never. I love that. That's grit. That's grit based on faith. They believed in their God, and even if he takes, allows this life to be taken from us, this is what it's all about anyways, O king. It's all about our relationship with him. So regardless of what happens, we're not going to bow down to your statue. He's so mad, he has them stoke up a fiery furnace to throw them into. The fire is so hot, and they stoke it so much that the man feeding the fire dies from the heat. And they take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they bind them with ropes, and they push them and throw them somehow into the fiery furnace. And then in Daniel chapter 3, verses 25, and you guys all know this portion. Sorry about my cough. Our version, the uh, New King James Version, says this. Look, he answered, I see four men. He said, you threw three men into the fiery furnace, but I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Now, in our version, it's all capital, the Son of God. We immediately think Jesus is in there with them. Now, let me preface what I'm about to say by saying this first. That may exactly be the case. That may exactly be the case. But this portion of Scripture is translated from the Aramaic. Here's what the literal translation says. He answered and hath said, Lo, I am seeing four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like to a son of the gods. It's like a son of the gods. So, the question is, who are the sons of God? Who are the sons of God? To me, it's pretty clear it's talking about angels. It's pretty clear to me that he's talking about angels when he says the sons of God. It's not the line of Seth. It's not some human line. It specifically says in Genesis chapter 6 that um, the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. Now, I want us to go forward into the New Testament. Forward into the New Testament. And to Second Peter chapter two, verses four to six. Second Peter chapter two, verses four to six. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So what is Peter doing here in this portion of Scripture? He's taking these accounts, God not sparing the angels who sinned but casting them down, the story of Noah and the flood, and the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's putting them all together. Can you see that? Okay, in Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 6, God's, uh, the, Peter's putting all three of those accounts together. Now, 
I want you to turn with me to the book of Jude. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Because he says a very similar thing, but he adds a little thing extra to it. Jude chapter 1, verses 6 to 7. Says this. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, he has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire." So what Jude is doing here is he's taking this count of God taking these angels who left their proper abode, who left their proper domain, and God reserved them for eternal judgment, and he's taking that and putting it side by side along with the account of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's specifically saying that the wickedness that they were guilty of is sexual immorality and that they went after strange flesh. Okay? Now... As we all know from the account of the scriptures, the, the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were given over not just to homosexuality. It was not just homosexuality. That was the base of it. It was a part of it. But remember, these people in Sodom and Gomorrah, they weren't all gay, right? Just gay or whatever you want to call it. They were married. They had children. All of these things. But they were so wicked and they were so perverse in their sexuality that it was a free-for-all. And remember, when the angels came to visit Lot and his family, this says the men from every part of the city surrounded their home and demanded that Lot send out those two angels who had the appearance of young men so that they could have their way with them. And remember, Lot says, please don't do this wicked thing. And they, who, who made you judge over us? We'll do worse to you, remember. And that's when the angels say, stand back, Lot. we got work to do. And they step out into the streets and strike the men of the city with blindness. Okay? But the idea is, and that's where we get our word sodomy from, is from Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? Like it or not, it's not very politically correct, but any kind of homosexuality, any kind of sexual perversion, and what sexual perversion is, the definition of it is, is anything that is outside the boundaries of what God has ordained in his word. That's it. It's not about one person being worse than another person or anything like that, okay? If you have a person, a gay couple that lives together, and you have a a, a man and a woman that live together outside of wedlock, they are both living in sexual sin outside of God's boundaries, period, point blank, end of story. That's what the Bible says. That's not to put a guilt trip on anybody, right? The Bible is set forth to make us all guilty, so that then we can call on the name of Jesus Christ to save us, to sanctify us. Now, I have great sympathy for homosexual people because a man and a woman who are living together outside of marriage, they can just get married, right? They get saved, they come to church and they get saved, they can just get married. We're a homosexual couple, they come to church and they get saved. There's nothing we can do there because God's word is abundantly clear. Now, I'm not saying that there's, uh, you know, we're going to put them through a gay therapy class so that they're not gay anymore. You know, I think God can deliver people from anything. You understand? 
He can deliver us from anything, anything that God, remember, will to obey. If God has told us to live our lives a certain way, then he wants to provide us the power to do so if we exercise our faith. But that doesn't mean that every gay person who gets saved, who becomes a Christian, no longer has any homosexual tendencies. And having those homosexual tendencies doesn't make them any worse than you or I, right? Or any different than you or I. The Bible simply says what it says, and we honor God. We don't have some divine right to our sexuality. Right, we have the right to do what God says we can do. And God has ordained it, and God has laid it out. That's what it's all about. It's not about putting, taking a group of people. You're bad people. But what Jude is doing here is he's taking this city that had rampant, violent homosexuality and putting it side by side with these angels that left their first abode and went after strange flesh. I think Genesis chapter 6 is very clear what happened here. It was so wicked and it was so evil in the time of Noah that demons, because sons of God just mean angels, and we're talking about fallen angels. They left their first abode. They've been reserved for everlasting judgment. They, they materialized. They took human form and actually had children with human women. And I think then, you know, if you listen to Chuck Missler, and that's one of his main things he talks about is he believes that was one of the major reasons for the flood was because he believes that Satan was trying to purposefully pollute the bloodline of the Messiah. Because if he could intertwine the bloodline of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, with the bloodline of demons or fallen angels, what are you going to do? And so that he surmises that that's one of the reasons that God sent the flood. Okay, now, just historically, boy, this is going longer than I hoped it would. Sorry, guys. Um, we're, we're almost there. I just want to make a few more points. Okay. Careful. <laughs> Um, you know, history books, there used to be accounts and there used to be stories of giants and stuff like that. But what has happened over the years is scholars and historians have simply begun to say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, we know that can't be, so that's obviously just this or just that. It's just a legend. It's just that. Uh, but this is, this is stuff that goes, that goes all the way back. Now, I mentioned earlier about the story uh, of Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was... Um, a Sumerian king somewhere around the 3rd century B.C., okay? And the accounts of Gilgamesh were that he was a half-god, half-human. Uh, Chuck, you want to put up the first picture? Oh, it's right there. This isn't an actual picture <laughs> of Gilgamesh, but I thought it was pretty crazy looking. So um, you want to zoom in on it, or Chuck, or, or make it full screen? Can you do that or no? doesn't matter. So this would be Gilgamesh on the, on the right. Well, that's weird. Okay, anyway, Gilgamesh on the right. Go ahead and go to the next picture. This is just a dumb illustration. Go to the next picture. Okay, this is actually a Sumerian um, um, sculpture, okay, an etching, whatever you want to call it. You see what Gilgamesh is holding in his hand? That's a lion that Gilgamesh is holding in his left hand. He's got a, he's got a uh, I think it's supposed to be a large serpent in his right hand, and he's holding a lion in his left hand, Okay. Maybe this is just coincidence. Maybe, maybe it's just legend. I just think it's very interesting. Here's another cool story. Uh, put up the next picture, Chuck. <clears throat> you guys know who that is? Buffalo Bill Cody. Um, 
when in his autobiography, he talks about when he was uh, amongst the Pawnee, um, uh, and one of the Pawnee brought him a femur bone, brought him a, a bone, and there was a surgeon that was with Buffalo Bill and his crew, and he examined the bone, and he said, this is a femur bone of a man, but he would have to be like 20 feet tall. This is a femur bone of a man, but he would have to be about 20 feet tall. And the Pawnee Indian went on to tell Buffalo Bill and his crew about that ages and ages and the eons before, there was a group of giants that roamed the earth, a group of giants that roamed the earth. You can put the next picture up, Chuck. And they were so large that they could run next to a herd of buffalo and scoop one up and rip its leg off and eat it as it walked. But these giants mocked the great spirit... And so the great spirit sent a flood. And they climbed the mountains, but the water followed after them to the point where the water covered the great mountains and the giants were destroyed. And thus the great spirit purged them from the earth. Coincidence? Maybe. I don't know. It's not the word of God. Fascinating. Fascinating. Very interesting. Um, Caesar, in some of his accounts, when, they were, when the Romans were fighting the, 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 the Celts, uh, he, there's accounts of Celtic giants uh, that they faced during some of, some of their campaigns. The word Patagonia, uh, when, they, when they discovered the land, it means, pata means foot, where we get our, our word podiatrist from. Gonia means giants, footprints of giants. When they went into Patagonia, they found these, supposedly, they found giant footprints. Of, of what must have been massive beings, and they named the place Patagonia, giant footprints, foot of the giants. Uh, now, of course, you read history, and I'm just going to tell you flat out, it's going to say, well, because the, the explorers were very small people. <laughs> and, and when they saw the footprint of a, like a, of a seven-foot person, they would be absolutely amazed by it. And I'd be amazed by it, like, wow, Shaq's got a big foot, you know. I remember, like, the Foot Locker when I was in high school, and they had Shaq's size foot there, his shoe, and it was like this. It's like I could ride the thing like a canoe down the river, you know. But I wouldn't, like, fall over and name a country after it. Shackfoot, you know what I mean? Uh, to me, it would have had to been something that was very, 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 very impressive. So, all of that is just free information, okay? And we don't know which of the legends are true. You know, uh, <clears throat> it's because I mentioned briefly the book of Enoch, and the book of Enoch talks about Noah being perfect in his generations. The book of Enoch is not canonized scripture. The book of Enoch gives a whole generational list of angels and basically blames all of man's sin and the sin of the world on these fallen angels. That is not what the scripture teaches us, is it? We are responsible for our sin. The scripture specifically says, let no one who when they are tempted say, God is tempting me. Because God himself cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt, but we're led away of our own lusts. Uh, it's an extra-biblical extra book, and Paul talks about not following after myths and endless genealogies. You know, he's talking about that. The book of Enoch was around at that time as well. It was not made part of Scripture for a very specific reason. So none of this stuff that I'm sharing with you guys is to say, there was Nephilim in Buffalo. But all I'm saying was, I believe that the word of God is true. I believe that the word of God is true. And when the children of Israel sent spies into the land and they came back and said, we saw giants in the land, the, the word is Nephilim, uh, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight, I believe it. I believe it. 
I believe exactly what it says. And it would make sense based on, on some of these things we read. So we're going to stop there. Sorry. <laughs> um, I wanted to get into, into chapter 14, but Heavenly Father, thank you for, uh, for your word, Lord. And, and uh, uh, Lord, we, want to, we don't want to take these things that we talked about today and, and uh, make any new doctrine out of it or anything like that. It's just fascinating. And, but we do want to be people that believe that your word is true. Uh, we do want to be people that believe that everything that you say in your word is true and that we can trust it because you've said it, Father. Uh, regardless of, of what any man says, Lord, or how foolish it is to the people of this, of this world, Lord, we believe that your word is true. So we pray that you would help us to have that kind of faith and that we would not waver or doubt, Lord, but that we would be like Joshua and Caleb uh, and that we would go where you tell us to go and believe what you say, Lord, regardless of how impossible it may seem to us and the people around us, Father. We pray that we would have that kind of faith. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.